Shelley. How are you? Where are you? Well, I am on a sleeper train on our way to Madrid and I'm actually feeling slightly traumatized because <laughs> as we always do whenever we take a train with our bikes, it's just an absolute drama. Um, so yeah, so feeling a little bit traumatized, but we did manage to cram them into this tiny little cabin. So I'm happy about that. Welcome to the How Are You, Where Are You podcast. This is an audio travelogue of our adventures by bike as we spend the next year or so cycling on our way back to New Zealand. After having lived in London for seven years, um, we decided we were ready to move home, but not just yet. <laughs> we left London on April 4th and cycled all the way to Lisbon. Next, we will head to Cuba, then Mexico, and then we'll ride all the way down to Argentina and be home for Christmas next year. In breaking news, my wife did not leave me. You remember from last week's podcast, she was on her way to London for her exams and I was left behind in Lisbon. Well, she came back. Yay! Yes. So the tour is still on. It's still like we're still like a Thelma and Louise double act. <laughs> I wouldn't abandon you. No. <laughs> but so how was London? What do you think of it? Was well, it pretty, pretty strange being back? Yeah, it was It was definitely strange. Um, the best part actually was when I was um, flying up there and flying back and seeing where we'd cycled because we flew, the plane flew all the way up Portugal. Um, so I got to see um, some of the towns that we went through and I saw the Douro River and yeah, it was... Yeah, there <laughs> must be a sort of special significance to be able to see it. Uh, from the air knowing what the lie of the land was down on the ground yeah it's it was kind of unique yeah it was kind of it was yeah it was crazy I just was really astounded by how huge it was and I kind of couldn't believe that we had cycled it I mean when I got on the plane it said it was 1,500 k's to London uh, at about 680 k an hour ground speed and I was like whoa I've I've done this trip in kind of a different way. Um, but yeah, so that was really cool. Uh, I had some horticultural exams uh, to do, so I got those out of the way. Are you going to pass? Ye yes, I think I will. I hope I will. <laughs> um, caught up with a whole lot of friends and had to sort of say final goodbyes to people. Um, but it was a bit strange, really, because I felt like I'd kind of lost my Londoner status in a way. Your swagger yeah I'd kind of lost it a little bit I'd lost lost my touch um, just on the tube and in the pub and yeah I don't know it just felt I felt felt different I felt like it didn't quite fit anymore oh, that's that feels quite strange because I would have thought that you go back to London you kind of you know you stand on that place on the platform knowing that when you get out you won't you won't have to walk around to the exit the, yeah. Those little, those yeah, little London things yeah. you felt you were losing. Yeah, no, I guess that's true. I mean, there was loads of it that I hadn't, and I don't know, it just wasn't quite the same. So, and I, and I also, I've kind of like moved into this new life, and I've sort of embraced it. And yeah, and I, and now because it's not an unknown, I think it's, I feel less sentimental about London and more eager to get on with what's next for us. What about the goodbyes? Because, you know, on April the 4th, we did our goodbyes and to London, but you had to kind of do it all over again. Was that weird as well? Or? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I kind of feel like, I know this isn't the case, but I kind of feel like people are like, oh, it's you again. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing here? And I was like, oh, hi. Um, so, yeah, it was great to see everyone again and catch up and, and fill people in a little bit on the journey. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's, 
life's moved on in the, in the last, it's only been two and a half, three months, but yeah, things have definitely changed. You were here in Lisbon by yourself and I know you kept yourself busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that uh, I've been kind of obsessed about since we've been in Portugal, are these little pastel de natas, pastiche de natas, and uh, these beautiful pastries, uh, layered uh, pastries with like filled with sort of creme brulee it's style. It's like a fancy custard tart. It's a pretty fancy custard tart and you know you can buy them for as cheap as 35 cents and uh, they're delicious. I've had one every day of our trip but everyone's been saying you know the whole way down oh you're not eating the real one. The real one you've got to go to Pastiche de Bling and uh, you know taste it for real. So I went to meet Miguel. I am part of management. This is a family-owned business, and um, I am part of that family. So, I am one of the three people of the family that are now running the business. Oh, right. And so, how many generations are you? Uh, like, what generation yeah. are you? My cousin and I. We are the fourth generation. Oh, right. And it's been. Has it been with the family the whole time, or did the family take over? What, obviously, four yeah. generations ago. Yeah, it's it's been in the family for four generations. Before that, it was uh, owned by a, the person that opened it uh, back in 1837, and uh, someone in his family. Then it passed on to our family uh, somewhere in the late 19th century and early 20th century, and it's been in our family for ever since. Oh wow! So it's, uh, well, I mean, you know, it's been a long journey for uh, Prestige Blem to you know, be here today and be, you know, all these tourists you know, and people from Lisbon coming through here, coming through the doors every day. But it's also been a long journey for me. I've cycled right throughout the country and eating the, these little pastries, well, every, every single day. It kind of, it's really good cycling food, it turns out. Well, that's what I tell myself anyway. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, but here, this is the home of, uh, everyone has sort of said to me, you know, come to Pestage de Belen and then you can really taste what the, the true, uh, the true nutter or the true Pestage de Belen is really, really about. So how did you guys get this reputation? Well, uh, I guess for, for several reasons. Um, this is probably one of the oldest ones uh, ever, to ever exist. Um, it was invented in early 19th century here in Geronimus, the monastery beside us. And uh, it's been here in this shop since 1837, so a long, long time. Um, and it has always had the name, a different name, this brand behind it called Pestege de Blay. Uh, and it's always been the, the only place in the world where, you, where they're baked and sold. Uh, also, the recipe that we inherited from the monastery, it's uh, quite a special recipe, quite different from the, the other Prestige Nata. Um, and we've managed to keep this recipe the same throughout all these years. And also, the, the baking process has been kept uh, mostly a handmade process. We have about 50 people working in the factory. They're all done by hand, one by one. Uh, they're always freshly baked. And I guess. Uh, all this, um, all this uh, care that uh, we put into the baking of the pastege, uh, all these years keeping the recipe unique and the same, and all that has been put into to this uh, to this product has result, resulted in a, a very quality product, and that's something that people associate uh, as a good experience. And since uh, 
we've been able to keep up the standards, I guess, that has helped us evolve and get more and more customers and become known not only in Portugal but also abroad. I found it quite interesting uh, to hear when we came here that uh, it's the nuns who are the big uh, inventors of all these wonderful pastries we uh, have throughout Portugal. Mm-hmm. How come uh, they're the, uh, the big inventors here? Were they sort of dumped with a load of sugar or something and said, go for it? Well, uh, I know specifically here, uh, most Portuguese sweets were invented in monasteries by nuns and by monks, that is true, uh, for two different reasons. Here, specifically in the monastery Jeronimus, this was um, uh, a port of arrival of Portuguese expeditions. So all the, the sugar, all the spices, all, the, the, all that came from, from South America, from India, uh, all the products that the boats brought in, they were all dropped here at Jeronimus. Jeronimus was used as a sort of warehouse for these uh, tradings that the, the Portuguese sellers would do um, in their expeditions. And, uh, so they already had the, the, the products they needed, the sugar, the eggs, uh, the flour, uh, they had it all there. And uh, besides that, the, the, the other important reason is that uh, nuns used the egg whites, the, the egg whites to, to press the, their clothings. Uh, uh, and so they were left with the egg yolks and they didn't really know what to do with it. So I guess that's one of the main reasons why they decided to start using those egg yolks and making uh, and baking and that's how most uh, Portuguese traditional sweets were born uh, specifically the pastéis de Belém uh, that was born here in Jerónimo which was well, this was the, the, the main the reason inspiration yeah, behind the inspiration uh, I guess they also had a lot of time in their hands I yeah. guess <laughs> and um, and yeah well they, they made some incredible sweets and this is definitely one of them so we are lucky enough to have some of them here what is characteristic uh, about these? Now, what's, what makes them so special? Well, um, I guess what makes them so special is that they're all uh, handmade one by one. There's, they, they, they follow the recipe, the old recipe. And uh, there's a lot of care involved in the making of these pastéis from beginning to end. All the ingredients are pre-selected. Everything is very well, uh, very well controlled and very well done. And then there's this uh, special consistency and flavor that we aim to, to, to achieve and that we, we manage to achieve. It's uh, very characteristic is that we have a very crispy dough. You can hear it every time you bite it or, or you squeeze it. Yeah. And uh, we have kind of a salty pastry, something that most pastéis nata don't have. And then the cream uh, is very smooth and it's not too sweet. So you get like sort of this mix between smoothness of the cream and crunchiness of the dough and also the sweetness of the cream and the saltiness of the dough. So it all mixes up very well and uh, makes out for a great flavor. Well, I mean, Miguel, I mean, your family has uh, been here for like four generations, but so you might consider yourself a bit of a connoisseur of these. I also consider myself a connoisseur. I've only been in Portugal for a month. But for me, I really like a crisp, uh, you know, as we heard with this crunch, mm-hmm. a crisp, uh, you know, uh, shell to it. Mm-hmm. And I really like it when it's not too burnt on the bottom, but also nice and crispy. And the other thing is when they're not too overfilled with uh, custard. Sometimes they can sort of burst over the top. Yeah. So is it, am, I, am I on the money here? Yeah, yeah, you were on the money, I think. Uh, for the pastéis de nata and the pastéis de blanc specifically, it's very important to get a very crunchy, 
dough um, and um, a smooth cream. Uh, obviously, not too not too too burned on the bottom or on the top. Just a little bit burned on the top. It's very important. You need to get that right baking, so that you can get a properly cooked dough and cream. So it's quite hard to do that. We have ovens that cook at about 400 degrees Celsius, and that's the temperature we need to 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 ensure that the pastéis will be well well cooked. And how how many layers of pastry do you need for these? Because you know, sometimes. I really like to see when you, you can actually see the layers of pastry. That's what's really attractive about them as well. Well, that's part of the, the recipe, the, the, the amount of turns that you need to give to the dough. Uh, that's, that's what comes out looking as a, the, the crunchy dough and you can see it separating and all the different layers of dough. That is all the handmade process of baking the dough and folding the dough. Uh, I can't tell you how many times we fold it because <laughs> that's part of the secret recipe. but. Uh, I can tell you that we fold it a lot and, um, and you need to put a lot of butter in the middle and uh, so that when it goes into the oven, it can, when, you, when you bite into it, you'll see all these layers come out. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, it's, it's all in the eating, of course. Yeah. So, uh, no, the pilgrimage for me over Portugal ends here in Berlin and uh, I'm going to taste it, see what it's like. Mmm. Okay. Okay, I'm not just saying it because you're here, but that is um, okay. That is the best one I've had in Portugal. It is so nice, and I love the um, uh, you've really done that cream brulee topping. Very, you know, the uh, the kind of burned off thing that is really good and nice and crispy and sugary. Oh man, it is so yum. <laughs> It's not sticking to the top no, of No, it's not sticking to, it's not on yours either? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, well, this has been a great journey, eating um, nutters and now uh, right throughout Portugal and now coming to Lisbon and uh, trying the real thing. It was really well worth the visit. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you so much for visiting. Thank you. We've been staying in this um, cool little house in a great neighborhood in uh, Lisbon. It's called Campolid. Is that right? Yeah, Am I right. saying that correctly, uh, Baden? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You've got the best Portuguese pronunciation of both of us. Oh, Everyone thank keeps, you. oh, you said it exactly right. <laughs> oh, you flatterer. Um, yeah, so we've been staying in this really cool little neighborhood and it's great. It's, it's kind of slightly away from the touristy bit um, and it's like when you poke your head out the door people have still got washing hanging outside and yeah it feels it feels like uh, a, a real proper little Lisbon neighborhood a little village within Lisbon so yes, been enjoying that been, since we've stayed there you can sort of wander around the neighborhood and sort of pretend that you're a Lisbonite or as they're actually what are they Alpha Senius, which Alpha is Senior. Alpha Senius, which is uh, what they call what it's a sort of colloquial name for people who live in Lisbon, which means lettuces. <laughs> so we've been uh, hanging out with the people of the lettuce people. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, they've but been the, really friendly as well. Yeah, I mean, I go along to the bakery and then the, one of the customers at the bakery at the hot bread shop, she was saying that uh, I need to shave my bed. No, men in Lisbon do not uh, wear beds like this. And, and also, while you're at it, you've got too much hair as well. Oh so, you know, yeah, they... Uh, <laughs> Liberties. They, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, well, we've um, the guy who actually owns the place that we stayed in, his name's Nuno, he's starting this um, storytelling initiative. He's a really great guy. Yeah, and I chatted to him about it a little bit more. I'm Nuno. Uh, usually foreigners get... My name is very strange for them, but for us it's very popular, Nuno. <laughs> we have a lot of Nunos in, in Portugal. Uh, I was uh, working uh, two years ago as a sales manager and in marketing, and uh, I quit my job. I would like to, to be a cultural entrepreneur. I open a, a cultural bar that we make theater there, concerts, a lot of good things, poetry slams and poetry sessions. And one day this guy came to my bar. We do it, uh, we, uh, we, a few years ago we make theater together, but we didn't see each other for a, a couple of, of time, maybe yeah. for two years. Two years. And we met uh, because José, his life changed a lot too. So we met both on, we both have big changes in our life. So, and we decided to do the, the Lisbon stories. Was a good idea, a very uh, in, innovative maybe, and uh, creative idea that is telling stories in, in acting. To, to the tourists, stories about the city. I think it's one of the best, I think it's a, a, a great way to know, to know a place about these stories. So like, for example, right now we're in, uh, I guess you could call it the Garden of the Star, yes. here in Lisbon. Direct, direct <laughs> translation, yes, exactly. Jardim de Estrella. Yes, and, uh, and and you know it, it looks like a, it's a Sunday it's a Sunday afternoon yes and people are you know having fun in the garden relaxing capturing all the shade looks like a normal of a garden in a, in a normal city but hanging out with you guys you can tell us even little stories about uh, the the things that are around us here so is that the sort of uh, idea that you'll sort of want to try and get across that there's a story wherever you look in Lisbon? Yes, it's what surrounds us that um, makes us look and uh, see and understand the things that we could tell. It's, uh, in fact, like you were saying, being injured in the Estrela makes us think about the trees that were here, that are here, who, who planted them, why these ones here, why this seem a bit exotic and go for that matter, or the 28 tram, and try to understand why the pickpockets go there, what stories are, you, what can you find there, because the tourists will be inside the 28, and then if you tell that story, they can relate to their experience. It's, uh, so does that mean you get onto the 28 tram and then you start acting as a pickpocket in order to tell your story? <laughs> <laughs> that could be a good that idea. Could be a really good idea. <laughs> Let me take a small note. Yeah. <laughs> we make uh, some kind of acting when we uh, are uh, last year. We tell the stories on the house Rafael Baldaia, this bar that I, I was there uh, with my partner. Now I, I'm not in that project. And we stop. The, the 28 tram pass in the same street, so we stop the tram just in front of the bar 
and we make like a salt to the tram, to the tourists, to, to make some publicity and some advertising there. Hey, going to happen in two hours, the, the best storytelling session in, in Lisbon about Lisbon stories. Uh, you get a lot of fun, come to see us. It's the unique event in Lisbon like that. So, um, but the driver was not so happy because we put a, um, a trash Trash container. A trash container in the middle of the street. You <laughs> probably thought you're like Ronnie Biggs doing a big train robbery or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. But outside. The well, window. maybe you could like put the uh, rubbish bin in front of the tram and then go onto the tram or pretend to rob all the tourists. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a different story in uh, in the police headquarters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A different story. A different story. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> excellent. Well, thanks very much, guys. Good luck with the storytelling. It's, it sounds like it's going to be a cracker. The sound of the number 28 tram, a very famous tram in Lisbon that lots of tourists take. Everybody recommends that you jump on it and have a chance to kind of whirl around the city and see some of the really cool little suburbs. And yeah, we had a great time on it. It was, it was a nice little thing to do. Five euro seventy well spent. Yeah, and we didn't even get pickpocketed, so <laughs> yeah. I thought that was uh, that was a nice bonus. Uh, and and you know, even this, I saw this guy across from us, and his wallet was sort of slightly hanging out of his pocket. I thought, you know, I could have that, but uh, <laughs> I I did resist. Oh, that's good. The tram um, goes up some little streets, and um, is it Alfama, the neighbourhood? Yeah. yeah. And some of these streets, like it, they're the they're the width of the tram, so you go up these tiny little streets with these beautiful pastel kind of colored houses on either side right on either side of you um, you ride with the windows right down yeah. so when you're sort of hanging out um, the window to sort of take that you know, key shot uh, <laughs> you you risk really getting your head chopped off by a tram coming the other way yeah, <laughs> but it's lucky they that you can kind of lean out the windows the trams are quite old-fashioned and because they're very popular some of them are absolutely rammed with tourists um, and actually, didn't Nuno tell you that occasionally uh, pickpockets can outnumber tourists? Yeah. Or there's a yeah. there's a myth that this is the case. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he said the trams are kind of like their office. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the funny thing was when we were riding around in the trams. I remember last week we uh, went to the, the Fado Singers, and we saw the two old ladies uh, just walking along on the street. It was like celebrity spotting. We're like, those are the Fado ladies. <laughs> Well, hopefully the tram can catch them up. We can take a picture. Oh, we completely papped them. Yeah, we we papped them. We've got about eight shots on my that phone. That's cool. That yeah. made me made me realise a little bit more that maybe Lisbon isn't such a big city. It feels like a big city, but actually there's only about five hundred thousand people, so it's not the biggest city. We also managed to um, get to the aquarium as well, which was quite good fun. Yeah, this you know, it sounds like quite a touristy thing to do, but I, I heard that. Uh, Lisbon has a kick-ass aquarium and it truly is spectacular yeah. it's got like a seven million liter tank wow. that sits in the middle of a, like an octagon building and so you can sort of walk around and see the tank from many angles but then sort of on the outside of that octagon uh, sort of um, different habitats that they've set up that represent the four great oceans, the Pacific, the Indian, the Antarctic, and the Atlantic. Yeah. So it's like it's it's in each corner of the building is another ocean, 
Um, and then it's two stories. So on the top story, you get um, the above water kind of environment. So they have like a rocky coast with puffins. And for the Indian Ocean, they had a rainforest. And then when you go downstairs, you get to see what's under the water. So it's really clever the way they've done it. And then they have in the middle the big tank, which is called the open water. And that's just a bit of a free for all with sharks and stingrays and all sorts of cool stuff. And a weird sunfish, which if you don't know what they look like, they are really bizarre looking. Yeah. <laughs> it's the largest bony fish in the world, I think, or something crazy yeah. like that. They are, they are bizarre flabby things, aren't they? And the other thing that we did, and we kind of had to because it was so close to our house where we were staying, was go and see the aqueduct. Just a few minutes from our door where we have been staying here in Campo Lead area in Lisbon, where there's this enormous aqueduct. And uh, it's, it's particularly awesome when you're right down below but we've come to visit up on top of it today. And uh, this aqueduct, it's what, how 50 something kilometers long. It stretches out, out towards Sintra and it how, it's how they provided water for the city of Lisbon. It came along this big old aqueduct. It was built in what, the 1730s and it was ready in about 1740. Mm-hmm. But then not long after. Well, about a hundred years after, um, people used to walk along it and use it as a bridge basically. Um, so we were told the story of Diogo Alves yeah, and it's funny, the story of uh, Diogo is not actually on the official brochure they give you when you uh, walk into the museum, and I wonder why that is, Shelley. Yeah, well, it's there was mysterious happenings going on on this bridge. So basically, um, Diogo was on the bridge one night, and opportunity knocked. He saw someone coming towards him, and it was a young lady who looked like she might have a little bit of money on her. So he decided to hide here in one of these kind of doorways that you see periodically along the, along the aqueduct. Let's hop inside. Anyway, so he hid in here, and then just as she passed by, he pounced on her and stole all her stuff, and then chucked her off the aqueduct. Um, in the morning, the police found her, and they thought, oh, this young lady's commit suicide. So Diogo thought to himself, hmm, here's a good little scheme. So he ended up robbing and throwing about something like 70 people off the aqueduct, and they just thought, oh, there's this mass suicide thing happening with the aqueduct. That is until a little old man surprised Diogo with a gun, and scared him away. He obviously went straight to the police and told them what happened, and the police finally cracked the case. Maybe someone was actually pushing people off this thing. And I don't know, it's about 60 meters high, isn't it? Um, so they found him, and they decided that he you know, was basically a serial killer. And But before they killed him, someone thought it might be worth keeping his head. Yeah, they thought that for medical reasons, his studying his brain might be actually something quite useful to do to find out what makes serial killers tick. So they cut off his head and Damien Hurst style they put it in a jar of formaldehyde and it sits in a museum here in Lisbon uh, in perpetuity. You can actually see what he looks like and he we haven't seen the head in real life but we've seen a picture of it Uh. and he looks pretty serial killer like. Maybe we can put a, we can post a link. So they actually, after they um, you know finished with Diogo, they closed the aqueduct because they deemed it to be too dangerous for just normal pedestrian traffic, um, and only reopened it about uh, in the last fifteen or so years. Yeah. So here we are, Baden. Just you know, hold tight to the handrail and don't get close to the edge. Yeah. Well, I haven't <laughs> seen anyone creepy walking along yet, but uh, there is a man on security, so I think that'll stop all yeah, the serial killers. <laughs> Our trip in Lisbon ended with getting on the sleeper train and that was like another experience in itself. <laughs> I mean, we, we bought our tickets further um, up the line in, when we were up in Porto 
and uh, the guy just said, yeah, we, we've got your tickets for your bikes, so basically your bikes will be able to fit in your cabin. Uh, it turns out they, they don't really. So we're <laughs> all, <laughs> And there's no staff on the, uh, the platform at Lisbon. And so we're just under the impression that, yeah, we'll have to sort of get our bags on, get our bags on first, and we should be able to get our bikes. And perhaps this is the first stop, so the train will be st- no, stopped here for quite a while. The guy said, turn up an hour early. Well, we could have turned up five minutes early. It didn't matter. <laughs> we sat on the station not knowing you know, where the number three uh, coach, coach was, was going to turn yeah. up. And then, um, yeah, so you look for the numbers, and you race down there, and they say, okay, you've got five minutes. And then, oh, no bikes. Oh, that was the worst. We gave the guy our tickets and he just took one look at the bikes and went, no, no, you, ca- you can't bring a bike on here. And we're like, yeah, yeah, we can. We've got a ticket. It says bikes. We like show him all kind of, you know, smug. Like, here, here. He's like, uh, okay. Oh, God. So we like strip the bikes of all the bags. Shelley brings us the bags into this tiny little cabin. It's kind of like a, it's like a bunk bed. Put it this way, you could not swing a cat in here. There's literally, next to the bunk bed, there is probably about 60 centimetres of floor space. Yeah, we'll put some low-res photos on the yeah, website yeah. to show <laughs> show you how sort of cramped and weird it is while, how we're podcasting today. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the, the aisle down to the cabins is so tiny, so I had to like get a tool to um, you know, straighten out the handlebars so they weren't sort of horizontal or kind of horizontal flatten yeah flatten them out and then roll them down on their back wheels and then we had to sort of oh god put Shelly's bike up on uh, on his back wheel and I've ram like, it against the window yeah I've I've met, tethered it to the tap on the little basin <laughs> I've tied <laughs> yeah. it into this position and then <laughs> and, and meanwhile like we, we managed to somehow close the door <laughs> But while we're sort of juggling bikes and we're in sort of really awkward positions, and then the train guards were sort of banging on the doors, I think they wanted to check whether this was a health and safety problem. I think they were like, how did they get the bikes in there? Suddenly the bikes aren't in the aisle blocking everyone's way. What's going on? So, um, and then I I was just saying, no, we can't open the door. I'm naked. And then I then I opened the door expecting like the whole train guard uh, crew to be out there waiting for us, and no one was there. So I think they um, they, they they've lost interest, and they're probably just going to get through tonight's donuts on this night train to Liz, uh, to Madrid. So yeah. what? We get there at eight in the morning. Yeah. So somehow we'll try and sleep. I'm not sure how you're going to get onto the top bunks. I've bags okay. the bottom. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how you're going to get up there. Yeah. <laughs> and the and um, and then. We've got to sort of, when it comes to 8, 8.30 tomorrow morning, we've got to work out how we've got to get the, because how do we get the bikes off? Because this is apparently not the last stop. Oh, I think the train goes from Madrid north up towards France. So, oh, oh gosh. Okay. Well, we'll worry about that in the morning. Um, I think we're kind of just about done, but we really wanted to thank everyone who made our stay in Portugal so awesome. Um, we've been in Portugal for a month. Yeah. And we just had great hospitality the whole way down the country. And it's been brilliant. Yeah, so a big thanks to Joao, Sonia and Afonso. Oh, there was Gabriela and Pedro. <laughs> um, we had help from Carlos and Clarita. And Elena and Manuel. Elena and Manuel. Uh, Tanya. Uh, Bruno and Anna, the, the, our uh, bike mechanics. <laughs> Nuno and Jose. Uh, Morton and Mafalda. 
And finally, Ricardo. And where were we then? It was Bitesh. Bitesh. Yeah, very good. Um, so yeah, that's that's all the people that helped us, al- along with probably many, many more. Mm, so it's one week before we go to Cuba, and then um, we're going to be sort of incommunicado in Cuba. I don't think. I mean, it's, I don't know how we're going to survive. I don't think they have Wi-Fi there. Layden, what about Instagram? <laughs> well, I know. Yeah, so it's going to be pretty hard. But we still have a couple of podcasts. We're planning a podcast on sort of wrapping up our European adventure. So uh, that's something to look forward to. I think that's us for this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. We'd love to know how you are and where you are. You can email us, you at gmail.com. Or you can head to our blog, howareyouwhereareyou.com, where you can post a comment under the podcast. We love to get the comments. Um, there are also a couple of links on there for uh, subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Um, you can follow Baden at Baden C on Twitter or Baden Cycling on Instagram. And thanks, as always, to Callum Campbell for the original music in the podcast. See you next time. Bye. Bye.